You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volts, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volts. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today our guest is preservationist Leah Solomon. Welcome, Leah. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Sure. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Why, of course. My name is Leah Solomon. I am a Capricorn, and I do event coordination for the Preservation Resource Center right now. Uh, this is week three of that. So just starting a new job. Yes. yes. Very Great. exciting. Very Great. different. <laughs> well, can you tell us about your history and your education and that sort of thing? Why, of course. I got my bachelor's degree at USC in public relations and then did online media planning for Warner Brothers for almost a year. We got laid off. Uh, best thing that ever happened, even though that job was amazing and fun and I really liked advertising. I really liked what I was doing. Plus, we got taken out to a lot of parties <laughs> in L.A. So mm-hmm. it's like super dope. Just to brag for a second. And then uh, I m- hated L.A. So then I moved to Flagstaff because my friend had just started a position in an AmeriCorps Conservation Corps. So I was like, I'm definitely not going to do that, but I'll totally move to Flagstaff. <laughs> so then I went there and uh, ended up not finding anything and just doing the conservation corps anyway. Mm-hmm. And so did conservation and through that experience figured out that I wanted to do historic preservation, which was a field I didn't realize existed before. Okay. Even though USC has one of the only bachelor <laughs> programs in historic preservation, I was like, oh, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then moved back to Indiana where I'm from because you don't come out of a conservation corps with a lot of liquid cash. Mm-hmm. So moved back in with my parents, found the most historic place in Indiana, which is Madison, Indiana, in my opinion. I'm sure I'll get some angry tweets or something about <laughs> it. But absolutely gorgeous place and just started working historic preservation with an eye on getting my master's. And so two years there and I came to New Orleans to do preservation okay go to Tulane okay can you tell our listeners what exactly a conservation corps is oh sure uh first of all it's an amazing thing an amazing experience I highly recommend to everybody listening to this podcast who's under 26 to join historical and interested in preservation join historical join rebuilding together here in New Orleans join conservation corps they have them all over the southwest and what I did I'm not sure how this compares to other cores, but what we did was basically trail conservation as well as fire breaks with chainsaws, and we worked in a lot of burn areas, of course, very dry part of the United States. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a lot of just hacking at the ground (laughs) (laughs) one way or another. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, because I know that's not something that's come up so far in in any of the – interviews that I've done so far so I wasn't sure maybe our listeners didn't know you know what kind of what kind of job that is yes yes very hands-on you have six months or one year terms and you just work with an amazing group of people your age going through what you're going through and Mm -hmm. you're also like really 
seeing what you're capable of as a person. I don't mean to get too preachy about it, but I really think that my life would be a miserable puddle if I never did that. <laughs> like I would, I would not know myself like I do. So yeah. highly recommend. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it opened up a lot of doors for you. Definitely. Okay. Okay. So let's go back to your work in Indiana when you worked for Historic Madison and the Madison Main Street program. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I picked Madison. It's the largest contiguous National Register district, or at least top five. Easy. I think it's largest, though. Wow. Um, in the United States. And it's like walking into, because it's a river valley. Uh, it's on the Ohio River. And it's at the bottom of a hill. And across the river is Kentucky, but there's nothing on that side of the river because it's such a short part of the valley. Mm-hmm. And so all you have is this. 163 square blocks of city in a mile or a mile and a half and it just feels like a postcard you're living in a postcard from 1865 it's absolutely incredible um so I knew I had to go there and that's what brought me to Main Street or Main Street is what brought me down there besides the fact that I had my eye in general I shadowed the Main Street director at the time And she was just such a delightful woman. I mean, I credit her with sort of giving me the gospel of community, preservation in communities in the Main Street program. Mm -hmm. Because before that, I came out of the Conservation Corps with like hands-on experience and thinking that's where I would go. Mm -hmm. So she was my first step into the education of how preservation really affects our community mentality and our local culture and I connected with that a lot so I really only shadowed her for a couple weeks but and she was from a tourism background even Mm -hmm. so it it was a surprising connection there and then I found a more permanent position through volunteering for Historic Madison Inc and I was in their development department which is of course a great place to start at any nonprofit because if you can make money they'll keep you right (laughs) So that that was a great place to do such a position because small town, you're going to small, small outfit, you know, Mm -hmm. five people in the office. You're going to learn everything about what they do. You're going to learn everything about all the properties that we're managing, as well as how that interacts with the town, sort of the public relations Mm -hmm. of that entire organization. So great place to start. I I suggest starting small. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell our listeners, because again, there's something come up that we haven't touched on yet, what a Main Street program is? Oh, sure. Oh, gosh. I don't think I'm going to do it service. And you totally told me it was coming. (laughs) (laughs) Just whatever you can share. I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes so people can go to the, to the, and, you know, get more information off the website too. So, well, basically it's in the, I'm going to go ahead and say post-war 50s, 60s, 70s, we started an automobile culture, right? Mm -hmm. So small main streets at the center of towns were totally outmoded in that 30 year time span. I mean, even up through the eighties and nineties, of course, where you're just tearing down buildings for parking lots commerce was suffering because everybody was going out to major roadways and a freeway is the best thing to happen to any town because then you could have freeway freeway side highway side attractions 
sure. businesses, malls, sure. yeah, you know, just the suburbanization of America was happening. And so people were being pushed out from the center of towns. And so especially very small towns where a lot of people used to live in the center and help with that commerce were just decaying and dilapidating. And so the Main Street program was invented to and came in as a federal Oh, no. Is it federal? I think so. Because you have to be a certified local government. Yes. Which is delineated by the states, which is, I mean, ugh. Well, it's one of the two. I, th- I think it. I think it is. I want to say that it is. I probably know this. But we'll, we'll look it up. And There's I'll... a National Main Street conference, so yeah. Yeah. it happens <laughs> on a national level. So... Anyway, these programs started popping up in order to make sure there was there were eyes on the streets. How do we reprogram these areas and bring in them, bring people back to the center of our towns? And luckily, Main Street programs are thriving. I mean, people in our age bracket, older millennials, more mature millennials, right. I'll say. <laughs> Elder millennials. Elder millennials. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're wanting walkability and we're coming back around to it. And so it's definitely hitting a golden age, but that none of that would be possible without the start of the main street program and a lot of innovators or a few innovators at the beginning of when, when all of this was coming through. Mm -hmm. So I think it varies from town to town as far as what the actual execution of the main street program looks like. Mm -hmm. But in Madison, uh, Ms. Whitney Wyatt would just got to know every single store owner. How can she help? And she worked alongside the Chamber of Commerce, too, to mm-hmm. help. But it was how can she help? What about having a shopping, an after-hour shopping extravaganza, especially around the holidays? What about having a farm-to-table dinner in the middle of town square, um, how do we bring people and engage a community that even in a small town like Madison had still flown from downtown and moved up the hill mm-hmm. um, and went, was going to Kroger's, was going to Walmart, like were not shopping downtown for these specialty unless they needed a specialty item and they weren't living downtown at that time. Even when I was first moving there, mm-hmm. it was sort of just starting, just picking up. And so she was like, how do we entice them? How can we make this really fun family event? Yeah. Okay. I know that here in New Orleans, I believe Oak Street was a Main Street program some years ago. And also, I think O.C. Haley is still. O.C. Haley's still still kicking. that one. Um, We got Broad Street. Was Broad too? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I know there's quite a few. and, And there's probably one near anywhere our listeners are because they're sort of all over you know they're kind of all over the place and um I I know they're doing some voting right now to pick a winner for some funding I'll post the link in the show notes so (laughs) people can look at it and see how it works oh yeah the great American Main Street Award yes 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 Uh, Hammond is one of the finalists no big deal uh Chelsea Tallow who's the Technically, the Main Street director, but really it's the downtown development district. Mm-hmm. Um, they, which I like to think of as like a well-funded Main Street program, essentially. Uh, they are one of the finalists, so she's doing great. great things up in Hammond. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll put I'll put that in the show notes so people can look at it, and yeah. uh, if they want to look it up and get some more information about the Main Street program, because I think that's something that's been out there, but people don't really know 
that it exists or, or exactly like how it works or what it does. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's an aspect of like community building and preservation that it's important for people to see that that kind of stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. So getting the economics of preservation on that level, just a little kickstart yeah. like that is really important. And you just don't think about it. You're like, oh, preserving historic buildings, historic communities and history itself but really, commerce and economics drives everything right. we do. Otherwise, why are we doing it? Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, we would do it just to make things pretty and nice again. No, but... we do it for the people, <laughs> Taylor. It's not the pretty committee. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you want to make the houses pretty again. You do. Oh, you do. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's move um, forward from that. So after you lived in Indiana, you moved to New Orleans to do the MPS program at Tulane. Mm-hmm. And then when you finished with that, you went to work as an architectural historian? Yes, I was briefly helping Clio out as an assistant architectural historian uh, under mostly Gabrielle Begay mm-hmm. and, of course, Beth Jacobs when I was able to both I think are the greatest minds in architectural history in New Orleans. I'm going to go ahead and say it. It was amazing (laughs) to watch them work. Mm -hmm. And what's the name of the company again? They are Clio Associates now, but they just merged with McCrosty Historic Preservation Advisors. McCrosty Advisory. Okay. Okay. I did (laughs) see that they merged, but I wasn't sure who who they had merged with. Yes, McCrosty. In in that position, architectural historian is kind of – I don't know. It's, it's kind of an interesting term, mm-hmm. I guess, to me anyway, because are you, you know, it sort of encompasses a lot of different things. Are you doing hands-on stuff? Are you doing research stuff? Are you, you know, it's sort of one of those like one size fits all kind of descriptions in a lot of cases. So when you worked for, for them, you did some national register nominations or yeah I helped with the research mm -hmm. uh, for national register nominations for properties that were really seeking tax credits and also then their tax credit applications and I think what's awesome about architectural history is that people don't leave good records but buildings do yes and especially in New Orleans it's absolutely fascinating what you can find in the newspaper but even more than that like we were working on this factory property and it was sort of in a a part of Louisiana you know it was outside of New Orleans so basically the newspapers aren't going to be as forthright with Mm -hmm. a lot of that information and not it's not necessarily maybe as fun to research but what's awesome about architectural history is that you then research that entire industry you research who might still be alive that would remember you get the oral history that way. And so it's a lot more interactive and you end up learning, you know, the breadth of a subject before you find the key to the depth. It's like finding a needle in a haystack sometimes. So it's really satisfactory when you find the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's definitely not my forte. And so I, I was so thankful to work for two women who it was inspiring to see how much it was there for you know Mm -hmm. it's just like I loved learning on a new level from what I knew in grad school of the way to go you know chain of title look in the newspapers look in city directories find out who lived there find out who they know and it was just an entirely new level of discovering the history of a property Mm -hmm. sounds like a great great place it was really cool Great place to work for great people yeah 
That's really interesting. I, I, I hear a lot of different stories from people that, that take these positions and, and they end up doing so many different things, you know, as an architectural historian. Sometimes it's more on like, like that level, like you were talking about a lot of research and background, and sometimes it ends up being almost more like uh, planning based, yeah, you know, and, and different things like that, or, or GIS mapping and right. Doing like architectural surveys and that the history of entire swath of a city. Yeah. That's intense. (laughs) And sometimes it even bleeds over into like a little bit of archeology. span Yeah. Depending on what it is, the project that you're doing. And it's just, just a really interesting all encompassing term. True. Because sometimes the building materials will give you more of a hint than any documentation you can find Mm -hmm. about the history of that property. And who knows who's written on that Mm -hmm. building material, let alone where it came from. And the history of that manufacturer, and it's just like the most interesting chain of events that created this one building, mm-hmm. even if it's not interesting at all. Yeah. It's like a mystery. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And I think when you do that kind of research, you you sort of get sucked down these rabbit holes sometimes. Definitely. And you find things that you were not looking for and then maybe pique your interest in something else to, to come back and, and look at later. Yeah, I guess. And then I think sometimes too, I keep seeing there's there's a lot of resurgence with the with the Sears homes right now, the oh, catalog yes. homes cuz they're filing for bankruptcy and so all this stuff keeps popping up about those. And again, I think that kind of goes back to like the the type what what you can find when you mm-hmm. go back and look for it. And and again, you may not know it's a Sears catalog home and then you look at the materials and you're like wait a minute this is a catalog home and then you find out it came from Sears or maybe from somewhere else or you know something like that and right and it was popular in Michigan right. and then all of a sudden you're seeing your property repeated two million times yeah, <laughs> yes. like, oh my gosh I'm so connected to the United States we're all connected all family yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's somebody that I follow on Instagram that has a, a Sears home and um I've seen, you know, a bunch of pictures of the outside of it because they posted a lot. And then I was reading an article the other day that had descriptors of some of the more popular designs. And then I saw that little picture and I was, it was the same house that they had. Whoa. Yeah. And I was like, so that now I've seen, like, now I know the design name of that particular Sears house. And the one that was in the catalog picture, I think was a stucco house and theirs was brick, but the the shape was was the the exact same. same. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's really interesting. And right. sometimes just finding, you can just find that stuff on the internet too. And slight modifications just yeah. for the personality of the person or maybe the climate. Mm-hmm. It's totally, fa- it says so much about that point in time and that place in time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then what else? Speaking of Sears, there's, um, oh, this is kind of off topic, but I just keep thinking Loving about Sears it. things. There's There's been sort of a resurgence of adaptive reuse for some of the old Sears buildings the the manufacturing and distribution buildings oh and uh, i had the uh pleasure of going into one there's one in memphis it's now called crosstown concourse and it is a some insanely large amount of square feet i want to say like a hundred and ninety thousand square feet so it's, small 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's totally (laughs) small. And it's this art, this stunning art deco building. And Mm. a lot of them were built around the same time. And I I saw an article the other day with pictures with several of, there's another one in Wisconsin. I think there's one in like upstate New York and one in California. And they're all very similar looking because they were all built around the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. And they have these Art Deco details and sort of a big tower at the front, but you know they're 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 four and five stories tall, and they're just they just go on for blocks, and they're just these huge things. It's like, what do you do with these massive spaces wow. that have been empty for you know twenty years or thirty years? And this particular one, uh, and I'll put a link to to it so people can read more because I don't remember the the developers names or anything off the top of my head but they used they were able to use some tax credits and some other things and they've turned this massive building into this great adaptive reuse project that's just it's there's some restaurants there's some shopping there's a church there's a community center i'm trying to think of what else is in there there's obviously like uh, office space Mm -hmm. and stuff like that and i think they even have room rentals in there so it's kind of like they made it a mall um no, it's not really a mall. There's not that much retail in it. Okay. There's some retail, like on the main floor, and there's some restaurants, but it's really just sort of a lot of different things. Anything that they thought would fit with the sort of community that they were kind of building, wanting to build out of this interesting space. And there's there's a, also like a, life in a bunker kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we it's would need of, all of this. I mean, they don't. There's no. <laughs> There's no, like, grocery, so you couldn't do, you know, all of it together. But there are restaurants and coffee shops, and there's an ice cream shop that's really good. um, Because that was, like, one of the main reasons why I wanted to go over there was to try the ice cream. And then we got in there, and I started looking at the pictures, and I was like, this place is stunning. And to see what it looked like before they started working on it and how it was just sort of this shell. And now it's been brought back to light and i think there's a brewery in the back the parking garage that was built in the 50s maybe has this great like mid-century modern sort of overlay around the outside of it cool so it's a little bit newer than the art deco design theme Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's just like just amazing and so i guess there's been some there's one in wisconsin that they're working on or maybe that one's finished, I think. They kind of did the same thing. They took this huge space and they made it into this multi-use, you know, area that for shopping and living and all kinds of things like that. Hmm. And it's just like, this is the coolest thing. Hmm. I wasn't expecting to find something like that when we went to Memphis. And I was yeah. like, oh, this is great. And now, I, and now I see it popping up more and I'm getting to see the other buildings that they're doing the same kind of thing with. Well, you bring up a really interesting sort of side avenue that I would love to discuss and that is when doing these larger projects and specifically the ones you're speaking about in the Sears warehouses and distribution centers who are they like who who is redeveloping it what kind of partnerships do you know if there was an anchor store or what like how did the how can a community looking to do the same thing do just that like mm-hmm. how can they use this idea for them do you know uh the background of the project um i do know they looked into doing an anchor store and they decided not to go with that mm. but they do i'd have to go back and look at the article again i know that they did have they do have one or two like corporate sponsors that did help oh um, okay with some of it and then what did they get in return for their sponsorship i don't I know i wonder I okay. have to go back and look at it. And they did get tax credits because they were able to 
they qualified for what whatever was left was able to qualify for historic mm-hmm. tax credits. And I'm trying to think. They they had they had several creative avenues of, of building funding for for sure. redoing the building. But I, I don't remember all of it off the top of my head. I wish I had it pulled up in front of me. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um what is it a purely private entity? I think doing it? so. Oh, okay. I think so because yeah. I was in uh, Des Moines for this preservation conference for preservation commissions and I was so surprised first and foremost how awesome Des Moines is Mm -hmm. very young population right now a lot of people looking to drink beer it's great (laughs) and so uh well I guess sort of a lot of German Dutch over there anyway but uh one of the tours I decided to go on one of the excursions was this case study of two buildings of public private partnerships so it was the city needing to offload a building Uh Uh, I think one was an old firehouse and they found a private partner that and they could have made more money from a private partner not looking to redevelop it responsibly or use tax credits or save any of the historic fabric let alone demolish it they could have sold it for a lot more but what was important about making this feasible and i'm totally gonna butcher this um because i don't super remember what kind of covenants were in the sale i don't know if they ended up even going for tax credits yeah they did they did because they had to cover the windows keep the original and do that thing where you cover them Mm -hmm. with the new atmospheric control friendly windows and, but what was great is it was a nonprofit they partnered with mm-hmm. and there's a restaurant, a super fancy restaurant in the downstairs as well as cooking classes for, nice. I think the youth of Des Moines in the upstairs. Mm-hmm. And then also this geeky movie theater, <laughs> like that has comic books and all the classic snacks. All of these were able to redevelop this into, oh, and a black box theater as well, separately on site. And they've been able to do so much, and it was just because they pulled in the right partnerships. Mm-hmm. And so, looking if you're if you're out there, you're looking to do a similar project. I I think it's all about partnerships these days. You got to get as many people on board that will truly benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And th- and that was interesting again because it was coming from the city, so they also have to res- like everything they do is going to be watched in taxpayer dollars, and it's going to be yeah a ball of responsibility. So. How do you bring in a good client or a good buyer yeah. with that in mind? Yeah. It's interesting. But those kind of sort of like like case studies are, are good for people to look at when, when they are trying to figure mm-hmm. out what kind of how where they want to go with specific projects. And I think it's important to experiment and try different different avenues of finding funding or ways to make your project work because sometimes the traditional methods don't always for whatever reason don't always work. It's never you have dry. To think, yeah, you yeah. have to think outside of the box for stuff like that. And it's always nice to hear new new stories, learn how other people are coming up with creative ideas. Yeah, but, yeah, and I think there's a lot of that now. Like you said, with people coming moving back into cities, wanting to reuse those spaces that already exist that have been empty for a long time, and what's the best way to make them functional for the people and for the city, and you know keep them keep them interesting and not have them torn down Mm -hmm. and I think that's something you know down here with Charity Hospital is Mm. one of those things that they're still I think they've they've found a contractor they did somebody won the bid yeah and so they're actually might actually move forward with doing something with it now so that could be exciting and that's another one of those really huge spaces that's been vacant 
for a long time since Katrina that the city's everybody's kind of been like, what are we going to do with this? And now it sounds like it's going to be a really good mixed use project. It sounds like it's going to be some uh, low income, like or income based housing and some regular housing and some shopping and maybe some other things. And Mm -hmm. I think it's offices and like two lane medical student housing. Yeah. 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 Which would be great that the, the student housing would be great for that area because it's right there by the medical corridor, Mm -hmm. which would be perfect. So, and I I think the, the Pythian project really opened a door uh, and, who knows if I'm getting this wrong or if like everybody knew and saw this coming a mile away, <laughs> but I feel like the Pythian project really opened a door for how to use uh, affordable income tax credits. I'm butchering that name, of course, but historic tax credits, how to bring services to the community, how to make a downtown. And the New Orleans CBD is not a very friendly CBD no. if you don't just work there. Um, how to How to make it one. I mean, it's right across from the library. They're both so close to the public library, to City Hall, and yet there aren't any amenities for long-term residents in that area. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, it's back to that Main Street aesthetic. How do we bring back that that very necessary commerce to integrate culture, community into every part of our city, mm-hmm. especially the city center? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and things that are affordable for the people that work in the city and not more overpriced condos yeah. that nobody can live in downtown and I don't know why they but keep please, building them. Yes, build them sky high. Yeah. I don't I you don't know I hate the sun. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to see anything. Let's build it's up. fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, let's move forward since we got off on a little bit on a tangent yeah. there, but that's a good fine. tangent. Yeah. Um so let's talk about your not where you are now, but the most recent position before that, when you were working as the historic preservation coordinator with the Hammond Historic District. And just so everybody knows, again, Hammond is about 40 miles northwest of New Orleans. You kind of have to drive around the side of the lake and back up <laughs> a little bit to get up there. But it's a cute little town. It's uh, home of, is it Southeastern? Southeastern University is there. Yeah. Home of some really beautiful modern architecture. Yes. And a terribly cute Main Street. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is a cute little town. I spent some time, long story, anyway, several years ago, I spent a lot of time in Hammond. And um, <laughs> were you in jail there? I was not in jail there. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was dating someone that lived close to there. And ah, I had, okay. I'd had a couple of acquaintances. So we spent some time in the downtown area occasionally. And it, it, it is like super. But so can you tell us about what you were doing in that position? A lot of stuff. (laughs) I came in strictly as the administrative officer for the Historic District Commission, which is a seven-member citizen commission that oversees any exterior renovations in the downtown. Hammond has extensive design guidelines, Mm -hmm. and it's 360 degrees all around the building. Anything you do to that building that's changing it, you have to apply for a certificate of appropriateness, come before the commission, they have monthly meetings, and so it was my job to process all those applications, and I was actually the first person with a preservation background. My predecessor was a historian, Mm -hmm. so she was able to sort of gift that to the office, a very organized historian indeed, Mm -hmm. so I came in to a a very well-oiled machine, and so what I did is I processed the application sort of noted any red flags for the commission but ultimately it was not in my power to 
yay or nay anything. I just yeah. stated the facts and passed the law to the commission and then also coordinated the meetings. Um, you know, all the, all the legal stuff you have to do, take the role, post the advertisements, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So that was a part-time job. And I don't know who thought of it or how exactly this even happened. Oh, yes, because they were trying to expand the historic district. That's mm-hmm. right. And they were like, well, we're going to need you on full time for that. So we have to sort of reimagine the position. And I took that and ran and was like, you guys, you have such a gem here. Like Hammond is a very caring, very centralized community. And they have a lot of treasures. And some of them, they don't realize and are losing particularly the mid-century modern set. Yeah. So... I was like, I would like to work outside the district and be more of a preservation coordinator for the entire city. And so I mounted some grant funded projects and just to get a baseline, like the Central Hammond Historic Structures Survey was supposed to be 1400. That was our goal, 1400 structures documented beyond the scope of the historic district. Mm -hmm. And that was to get our baseline. How historic is Hammond? What kind of housing stock do we really have? And so mounted that project. Also did mid-century modern home tour because it's not just about the documentation. It's about the advocacy and it's about mm-hmm. the support of the community. And I wanted to show them how awesome some of their mid-century modern housing stock is. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Uh, architect John Desmond lived in Hammond for 10 years. He was from there and he came back lived there for 10 years before moving on to Baton Rouge and he was a Tulane architectural school grad and raised his family there for a brief period of time and really gifted the community with a great mid-century set. So anyway, it was really easy to find options for a home tour Mm -hmm. and it was fun. We did also educational lectures leading up. So just trying to engage the community as much as I can. Changes to the websites, educational materials available. I commissioned some small but I think really informative projects like a wood window information packet that anybody who's interested and sort of like looks at a wood window like I should maintain you but I don't. Right. Because that sounds hard. It totally is. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Hallie Borstall did an awesome just like really basic informational packet that has also a table of issues and how much it costs to buy the materials to alleviate that issue how many how long is it actually going to take you to do that and how bad is it mm-hmm. how necessary maybe is it to bring in a pro and so I I wanted to do more of that uh, I ended up doing getting that one commissioned and then our entire mid-century modern sort of separate sub website um, you know, my, my big thing was I want to get all the information as easily accessible to the public as possible. Mm-hmm. So that was the background documentation. That was the foreground. How do I make it easy to understand? And then the bigger picture for the future. How do I program it and make something sustainable like this annual home tour mm-hmm. um, and other lectures and workshops that people will not only come to expect, but come to really appreciate. Mm-hmm. And that was mainly how I started to grow the position. And now that I'm no longer there, I look forward to seeing what kind of door this has opened for a new brain Mm -hmm. and a new excited preservationist who has a lot of their own ideas for projects Mm -hmm. coming in. Yeah. 
yeah, keep your eye on him and America. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Up and coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, they, they have a, the historic district. So they also have a national registered mm-hmm. district, right? Mm-hmm. And one of them is inside the other one. Isn't the, yes. the local one a little bit bigger? It is. Okay. So can you tell our, our listeners maybe like what the difference is between a local district and then the national register district? Yes. So a national register district is pretty much purely honorary. It is just a well-documented selection of properties um, that are contiguous, and then you create district boundaries. You send it off to the national, the state historic preservation office. They get it reviewed by the National Register Listing Committee. And again, I don't actually know anybody's name. <laughs> I'm not on this podcast necessarily for my accuracy, <laughs> but <laughs> my information is generally good. <laughs> so, and they say, is it historic? You do a lot of historical research on why, you know, architectural history, why these buildings are important, where they came from, data construction, any architecturally significant features, any historically significant features that you can call out. You roll all that into your National Register nomination and they say, yes, you're right. It's historic. If you want historic tax credits at 20%, okay, you are eligible. Now, local historic district, that is a national standard. It's like, good job, you're historic. If you want tax credits and maybe some grants, you'll be eligible. Mm -hmm. But then for a local historic district, that designation really is up to the local level to define. So in Hammond, we had a lot of design review restrictions on the exterior, and that came with fines if you did not abide those guidelines and it came with some the less fun parts of my job which is of course um not execution uh enforcement enforcement thank you uh having to do enforcement having to do you know surveys to see if somebody has a banner up past three months you know Mm -hmm. you keep it tight we keep a tight ship in Hammond so that versus New Orleans now there's the French Quarter, which has a similarly stringent, mm-hmm. of course, design guidelines. The Garden District also design guidelines. But most of our local historic districts here in New Orleans have only demolition and new construction approval. Mm-hmm. And so that's very simple and very easy. And when in Hammond, we wanted to expand the local district to encompass a neighborhood or a portion of a neighborhood, there was a lot of pushback and misunderstandings about what that meant or what right. that could mean. Right. Because I think one of the great things about our field is everything we do is flexible to the, what the situation calls for. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we communicate that. Like, I, I want to designate this a National Register District because I think it's beautiful. I think it should be remembered and recognized. And if you want to move forward with any major restoration – and renovations, I want you to have the option. I want to encourage you to do that by having the option of going for tax credits. But if you don't want to go for tax credits and you want to demolish that building or you want to, you hate that you live in a mid-century modern and you want to do like um, my big fat Greek wedding and just throw up columns everywhere, throw up Mm -hmm. statues everywhere and completely change what that looks like and, you know, renovate it out of significance, you are very welcome to do that as well. Mm -hmm. It'll just be delisted, no big deal. So... There was a lot of pushback in Hammond because they didn't realize that all 
I think all everybody wanted to do as far as the neighbors that were pushing for local designation versus the ones that are against it, I think the ones pushing for it just really wanted that demo and new construction review Mm -hmm. because in Hammond, it's doing very well um, these past five years. I mean, I noticed it just over the year and a half that I was working there. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of change and a lot of development. And we lost a significant amount of mid-century modern homes, John Desmond homes, that were totally high style um, and had some very significant architectural elements. And they're just being lost without a second thought. Mm -hmm. So there should be at least some documentation, some stopgap with that review. It doesn't mean just because it's historic, you can't demolish it. It means let's at least document it. Maybe it does need to be demolished, or maybe you do need to build a 10-story McMitt. Well, of course, zoning will take care of that. But, you know, (laughs) like an absurdly lot-filling home. Like, maybe you do, but at least let's document the current conditions first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) So just just to sum up, the – Anything to do with the National Register, you know, the government, the national government listings is just uh, just a paper trail, basically. It's just yes. documentation. It does. There's no regulations. It's uniform. There's no rules. Yeah. Right. But the local district, depending on how it's set up, can regulate, you know, the way things look on the outside. Can regulate design. Yes. Can be a stopgap for a demo or inappropriate new construction, all of the above. Okay. Whatever the local demands are okay yeah i just i think that that's something that confuses people a lot like you were saying there's a level of of i guess miseducation maybe would be the word Mm -hmm. um that people get confused and they think oh this if we do this they're going to come in and tell us everybody has to paint their house blue and (laughs) and they can't have shutters yeah Yeah. well and there are places like uh sedona arizona Mm -hmm. where that is the only McDonald's with a green arch because you are not allowed to not have a like stucco clad building. Mm-hmm. It has to be all tans and greens. Like they have a palette and you have to work within that palette. Mm-hmm. And that's not even a historic district. Like that's just a general, right? Like some sort of City zoning regulate. district. Yeah. 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 So, well, I, I, you know, there's in Mandeville, there's a strip of, of Mandeville um that is not also not a historic district just like a main street drag and they set a regulation for sign uh, signage Mm. heights so all of the fast food restaurants along the street the mcdonald's and um i don't know the wendy's and i think there's a taco bell like the this their signs are cannot be higher than i want to say eight feet Mm. so they're all like eye level when you drive down the street and there's nothing there's no huge signage on that street at all and that's not you know that's just a local ordinance Mm -hmm. um that regulates that so you know you you can't always it's not always the historian's fault right preservation is false that you can't paint things or build things that size (laughs) and i i just think that community involvement in all sorts of districting is super important like I know working with the city I was always like if they don't want to be a historic district and they have all the information then why would they ever be a historic district like it's not up to me to delineate that Mm -hmm. and you know with the sign heights I'm sure that's something the city was like this is an issue it doesn't fit the scale of our town Mm -hmm. let's just 
throw that into our zoning standards and that I'm sure you know it has to go through city council it has to find some sort of community support so I mean just to make this a moral tale get involved in your local politics yeah seriously if you want to get anything done it's all about educating and if 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 you're right people get on board you know like if you have a great idea you communicate it well people get on board you'll get stuff done so Mm -hmm. Go to your city council meeting. Yeah. Elder millennials. Yeah. <laughs> Be involved. That's the only way to make things change. Yeah. Absolutely. So for for the buildings that are on the National Register, the National Register listings, and the ones that are going to qualify for the tax credits, they have to meet the Secretary of the Interior's standards yes. for rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called now? Mm-hmm. I feel like that wording changed since I was in school, but maybe it didn't. Maybe I don't it know. Did. So can you tell us about that? I don't think we've covered that too much on the podcast yet. Well, all especially if you're in a historic district or your National Register district, like in Hammond, happens to be in a local historic district, local design guidelines are a lot more stringent. Mm-hmm. So even in New Orleans, and you're, you're living in New Orleans and you want to go for uh, tax credits and you have to quote-unquote follow the Secretary of the Interior Standards, look at what local design guidelines are like because those will be more stringent mm-hmm. than what the Secretary of the Interior standards are because they're just they're, they're so general like basically keep your house historic in function and in appearance use the same materials where you can and replace with like mm-hmm. so like I I won't lie I'm not the most familiar with the Secretary of the Interior standards because I'm like as long as I know everything about my local, design guidelines I'm within the Secretary of the Interior Standards there's no reason any of those are outside yeah um so yeah that's a good guide especially as you're looking if you're a lay preservationist and you're looking at a historic tax credit project um and maybe you're not sure you want to bring on a consultant or somebody just look at your design guidelines Mm -hmm. simple okay yeah I know that the the Secretary of the Interior Standards is is like a you know, you could you could print the whole thing out and read it and try to, you know, grasp it. Right. It is. Nice but basically like what you said, it's yeah. like don't don't significantly alter what you're doing. And, and if you need to make changes, make sure it it matches the best that it can. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just kind of kind of keep it in keep it in line the best that you can. Mm-hmm. And I know that that can be really wishwashy. Mm-hmm. And there was this case in Hammond where a mid-century modern building wanted to put in doors where there was originally a clerestory window. Mm-hmm. And that clerestory is super character defining to the that architectural style. Right. And so it, it was really a part of what made that building mid-century modern. You know, it's not like replacing the roof because obviously a flat roof is doomed to fail in Louisiana (laughs) (laughs) or like giving it a slight tilt just so you can have appropriate watershed. But in the um, state historic preservation office had just some unofficial advice that listen, according to secretary and to your standards, you should not be taking away any sort of architecturally defining feature. Mm -hmm. So, that sort of stuff doesn't fly. So if you're looking at a building and it's a craftsman and it has exposed rafter tails and you want to go for tax credits, according to Secretary of the Interior Standards, like don't cover those rafter tails because that's a very, very telling architectural feature of your home. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, don't. Yeah. The one thing that came up a lot for me, for some reason that I remember off the top of my head, is is those, like, um, the awnings that everybody was putting on their houses in in this, I guess it was in the 60s. They're sort of like... The metal? The metal awnings that... And then you look back at it, and depending on what you're trying to do with the space, like at this point, they're 50, 60 years old. Are they now part of the historic fabric of the building? You oh, know, yes. Do you leave them? Do you where it, it depends? I guess it depends on where you're trying to take it back to. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you're doing your work, if you're taking it back to, if you're restoring it to a certain period, then you may take those off. But if you consider those part of the fabric, you know, of the growth of the building, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't take them off. So it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting um, conundrum. Yeah. It's a conundrum. Like what, you know, what, what do you do in, in that case? You know, right. you have to figure out what it's gonna, what you want to do with it, I guess. Right. Right. I mean, I know our state historic preservation office is very sensitive to state over, uh, change over time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why, preservationists get labeled as the pretty committee because we it is something to consider like do you want to take it back to original and ignore all the change over time or do you want to accurately represent every era and just restore all the quality materials to the level that they currently exist Mm -hmm. to the best they could possibly be of what currently exists and I mean personally I'm I'm the latter um I don't think we should erase erase change because everybody wants change to happen Mm -hmm. you're always going to get that pushback and so I like standards like new construction on a main street set back 10 feet no I'm sure it's not as much as 10 feet set back five feet from its adjacent historic buildings Mm -hmm. because you you have change over time but I can see that it is not part of the same era right. as the other parts of Main Street. It's filling a hole. Okay, great. Like, I, I can really visualize the history of this space. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool and yeah. important to remember. Yeah. Somebody posted today on Instagram about, posed a question about um, the floating facades that you see that were built oh, in the mid-century yeah. over the front of historic a lot of main street type buildings and what do you do with those do you keep those or do you take them down or you know that it it poses that same question and I'm kind of like you I'm kind of like I would probably leave it because it is now part of the fabric of this the building and the street Mm -hmm. and who knows what this state of the building underneath of it is either you know so you kind of have to you know if you take it down you may have to rebuild the whole part behind it because you don't you don't know well but maybe that's what the building needs like what if it's falling down back right. there because of the way that facade is holding water and then it's beyond an aesthetic issue mm-hmm. um yeah but it, it's very interesting how how people think things should look when i value my time working with the city because they have to we all had to be so fact-based mm-hmm. like listen, this just isn't good for the building. It's not about me liking it right. or me thinking something's a good idea um, from a design standpoint. It's all I care about is this consistency of the sight lines of this community and that we preserve the history. So what's best for preservation's sake? Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to look at it. Good. Let's get t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, I like it. <laughs> We're doing stuff. <laughs> So let's see, let's move forward a little bit. Yeah. 
since you've had a variety of different types of jobs, you've worked with some government stuff, you've worked with some private companies, what, which do you prefer? Do you prefer one or, over the other? Or, I mean, and then now you work for the PRC, which is a nonprofit. So mm-hmm. what are some of the differences in these places and what makes, maybe makes one more challenging or less challenging or you can be totally diplomatic <laughs> about this or right? not you know Never know. whatever you feel comfortable saying oh of course <laughs> well I don't I think of course I have a personal preference because of my personality and what I connect with in this field mm-hmm. I think there are just these jobs all have personality types so for the city somebody very organized which I am not they everybody was so supportive up there but I was just like I I just can't wait for somebody to take my place and (laughs) accurately file something you know (laughs) I was going off of what my predecessor had already set up but really like I'm a people person and so what's great about that in a city position is that I had a lot more interactive experience with the historic district constituents and I was able to go out there and just knock on their door and be like listen, I'm so sorry, we do have jurisdiction over window signage, you're not in trouble, you know, like able to have a person-to-person conversation, totally understand where they're coming from, have a delightful experience, and they never forget, you know, Mm -hmm. that you have to come back before the historic district or I'm going to have to do some enforcement proceedings. So I was well-suited for it in that aspect because we were just coming out of sort of this PR disaster of the historic district expansion and people really not wanting that and and us being on the, as the historic district, sort of being on the receiving end. Uh, But we weren't pushing for it. Mm -hmm. Like the commission anyway wasn't pushing for it. So they were just like, we're just here to answer questions and say that it is in fact historic. Like it's up to city government, it's up to the neighbors to want that to be a historic district. So... Anyway, from that end, I really appreciated that job. Um, But I am all about experiencing historic spaces. There is a neuroscience and a physical response to historic, to history, to experiencing history on Mm -hmm. a tangible level. And we have that all around us. We're really lucky, especially in New Orleans, to have that all around us. But even when I was a kid, I would go into this historic house museum in Bloomington, shout out Wiley House. <laughs> um, I would go every weekend when I was in fifth grade because as soon as you walk in, it was just like this sense of importance and uh, depth of character. And so I wanted to do more on that end and do more people interacting, experiencing that depth of character. So that's why I ended up bringing to uh, not Madison, Hammond. <laughs> when I first started working there, I did that all the time. I called it <laughs> Madison. It's kind of similarly smaller town. But so when I, I ended up bringing that to that position that was purely administrative with the events outside of the survey, with the stuff on the internet and with the historic home tours. And so I was like, if I'm being honest with myself, I just want to be an event planner. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I like historic preservation, but I really want to plan events. I love working in space and having people transported, mm-hmm. which is why, again, I liked living in Madison. It's like you walk outside and it's 1865. Yeah. And so when I saw the position come up at the PRC for event coordinator, I was like merging merging message with passion. And I was like, this is so perfect. So... I prefer that end because of the way my personality is and what I think my strengths are. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
I mean, you know, anybody who really digs architectural history would have loved working and writing and really honing your craft with uh, architectural writing. Would have loved, just died to work for Gabrielle and Beth at Clio. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody with, with a talent for that would just super dig that. I mean, nonprofit work is hard because you have to always be fundraising. You have to always be on it and think about the bottom line. So in that way, it's really nice to work with tax credits because you're thinking about the top line and Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, things are getting done and there's money. Like it's all about bringing things back into commerce, which has a lot more money than nonprofits ever could. Yeah. Um, And same with city administration. Those are taxpayers dollars. So every project you pick and every minute that you use your time has to be worthwhile Mm -hmm. every minute you're on the clock Mm -hmm. so that's not a bad thing but it's definitely an entirely different set of considerations and surprisingly I always end up back in nonprofits. (laughs) (laughs) always have to count my time yeah dang it but I also loved hands-on especially coming out of the conservation corps I thought I would go into restoration because there's just a piece to it and there's a at the end of the day you're kind of done you got to be in a space you love and do something you love and then at the end of the day you can go home and be with your family or watch your favorite show or learn to cook Mm -hmm. have a hobby you know it kind of frees up your mind because you work with your hands and I really enjoyed that and also archiving like I was a volunteer archivist at Historic Madison before I started working there in the development department and I super loved that there was a bunch of stuff from World War II, and it was like, uh-oh, the Nazis invaded today because the <laughs> newspaper, like, that's that's when this house was packed up, so everything right. was wrapped in the newspaper from 1942. Really cool. Yeah, oh, it was dope. And there was something that I was worried was, like, anthrax, but I was hoping it was more like better drugs. <laughs> <laughs> like in there but it was ended up just being like disintegrated candy but you never know what's in there (laughs) so archiving was really really cool because again that's experiencing tangible history Mm -hmm. so yeah I mean and I highly recommend I know you're gonna ask for it later so maybe I'll just wait on the advice but I just think in this field try everything Mm -hmm. because everyone needs help Right. Especially if you just want to see like if if you like architectural history, ask a nonprofit if they would like to do a National Register nomination or if they had their eye on anything that they need help with. And you get to try that out or, you know, everybody would nobody minds if you work for free. Right. Right. And you came on as a volunteer surveyor Mm -hmm. in the Hammond Central Hammond Historic Structure Survey. And so it's like, did you like surveying? Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But no matter what, it was a refresher course in architectural history mm-hmm. and architectural styles. And you got to hang out in Hammond for a bit. So it's yeah. like, oh, do I like to travel? Maybe I should do cultural resource management. So try everything. Yeah, I think that's pretty good advice. Find your preference. Yeah. Try try it all or, or see what you know, you know, you kind of know what your strengths are, like you were saying. And, you know, it when looking into this kind of profession, like looking at what your strengths are and what, and what you're good at, and then sort of lean into something that, mm-hmm. that is, is, you know, in that sort of direction. I know some people are really good, like not so good with people and they really like to do research and they really like to do like archiving stuff. And then mm. there's people like you and people like Kelly that like to talk to people and they like to be out there and, you know, doing that sort of thing. So, you know, trying to find something that sort of plays to your strengths, Mm -hmm. I guess, just like any other job. 
something to think about. But um, you kind of answered a little bit my next couple of questions, like what your favorite things about preservation. Oh. <laughs> I think you kind of covered that a little bit. But um, can you talk about one of your pet peeves? Yeah, I think, of course, anybody, anything that is counter to preservation is a pet peeve, like vinyl windows right. <laughs> or or like nimbies, you know, people are not in my backyard and the Robert Moses types like, shoot, just demo it. Let's put in a, let's put in a freeway. <laughs> right. Shoot. <laughs> of course, that's annoying. But my pet peeve in preservation as a field in general, I think, is that is when people get really singular minded and forget that we work. And of course, this is back to my love of community and bringing people into into this being passive. Everybody should be a passive preservationist in my mind, except for maybe like truck drivers. You know, they're road based. Yeah. <laughs> they're not but, community but, based. But they still see, you know, they see small they towns. They do. They can appreciate they, you know, it. They see the the Route 66 things that have been preserved on That's the side true. of the highway. Route 66. That was a big national initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, okay. Well, maybe maybe cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to offend any truck drivers who are preservationists. You're right. You're right. You're right. See, and that's my pet peeve is I'm not, be, I'm not thinking about the entire picture here. I'm not integrating the smaller things that I'm dealing with on a daily basis, the larger ideas about preservation into how it affects the world and how maybe it's unattainable. Like, of course, I want this building restored that has suffered a fire because it's one of the, like, foremost mansions in New Orleans Garden District. Mm -hmm. Like, I want that as preservationist, but I also can respect that it is a very, a big financial commitment, Mm -hmm. that it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of somebody's energy to mount that project. Yeah. And... Tax credits are awesome, but even as somebody who did them and did the research and wrote applications, they're a lot of work. Yeah. They really make you jump through hoops. So I understand that people might not want to undertake that. It's not their passion. It's not their vision. And that building gets demolished. You know, okay, well, how do we make up for that, though, as preservationists? Like, how do, how do we document the structure, like I was saying earlier? How do we just do everything we can so that we preserve this moment in time and this space in time somehow? We just can't lose it, especially, like, if there's any old-growth cypress in that building, dang it, like, <laughs> whip it out That's and bring true. it over to my house. That's like, true. how do we salvage the materials that are salvageable? Like, mm-hmm. it's not a to- – it doesn't have to be a total loss. And so that's kind of a pet peeve of mine in this field. People can get very one-track-minded, like, of course this is the right course. Right. And I – maybe part of that is, like, I don't have the same passion – I've always been a little morally flexible, and that's why I ended up in public relations in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) I see both sides, so whatever. But uh, so we need people with that passion. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but personally, I just like find it very, very counter to my own thinking, very Mm -hmm. counter to my own mindset. Yeah. And so it's kind of it's kind of a pet peeve when somebody comes in with that comes guns a blazing. Right. So the thing that I think that really was the most, I, I don't want to say beat into us when I was in school, but uh, mitigation, mitigation, mitigation. Seriously, though, 
there's always another answer. It's not yes and no. Mm-hmm. But again, I really respect the passion for people who can be that level of one track minded. It's like they are the people who get those projects done and find those partnerships and are like, where there's a will, there's a way. And so, you know, it just like, like where there's a will, there's a way, but there's always somebody else's will and somebody else's way too. You know? Yeah. So maybe I'm my own pet peeve. Maybe it's not even them. It, oh my God. <laughs> I'm the worst. Oh no. <laughs> no, I don't this think so. This is self-realization with Taylor and Leah. <laughs> Come full circle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I did want to touch base with you about where you see preservation headed in the future from here. Oh gosh. You didn't write that on this paper. I did not. Dang it. I wrote that down later. Dang it. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I mean, preservation it has to be about getting people excited. It's going to be hard when 90s architecture is historic. <laughs> but, you know, 10 years ago, people were saying that about mid-century That's stuff. true. That's and true. now it's, it's everybody loves it now. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, energy efficiency, it's all going towards that. And that's also why I got into the field of preservation, because the most efficient home, energy efficient home, is the one already built. Mm -hmm. So more discoveries on what exactly that means and more education about how these homes were actually built for this climate. So let's stop trying to make it like oh, it's so hot outside I need to shut off all my windows and have HVAC I think people are coming around to it mm-hmm. and shoot solar energy great but solar ventilators I was just at a uh, preservation resource center renovate right class last night and the presenter was all about energy efficiency in historic homes and uh, here I am coming from you know family that's originally from California and I'm always like yeah man like sustainability biodegradable everything solar power wind power yay he's saying that solar ventilators really aren't necessarily a good idea for historic homes Hmm. and of course solar panels you're poking through a roof of a historic home you're compromising that material so we really have to take into consideration how we're merging modern technology with historic homes and like I just uh, put solar panels on an auxiliary building on my property and we just had to bu- it was a flat roof so I was like well that's not sustainable in the first place <laughs> right. thank god so then I just built a new roof on top of it and I kept that flat roof and now we can utilize it as a storage space you know like there there are those small I still preserved the original intent of the building mm-hmm. you know now I have this ridiculously sloped like steep awesome roof I'll have a housewarming one day. You'll go. You'll see. <laughs> we'll put it in the shout outs. But <laughs> so, um, but that was, and I had a terracotta roof. So it's not like I was going to retile my entire right. roof just to have solar panels. Like I did what I could with what technology was available and how that merged with my property. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where preservation just has to go. And we'll always be dealing with the politics. We'll always be saving buildings and doing the advocacy piece but I think we really have to concentrate on how we don't ruin our world anymore. Yeah. Where we can help it. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so to finish up, what advice would you give people looking to get into the preservation field? Definitely just start at the bottom, try everything, and then 
get your depth of knowledge once you know sort of the path you want to take. And I liked the Tulane MPS program for that part because it was a quick program. I was already had been in the field for two or three years. And so I took the program so that I knew everything about architectural history and I knew more about economic incentives and I knew more about the political national political policy Mm -hmm. as well as of course now that I'm living in New Orleans it was a a great program uh, for that (laughs) for knowing everything about New Orleans architecture as well yeah and getting to know the people in New Orleans uh, preservation and architecture and so I just first of all again recommend some sort of AmeriCorps (laughs) if you're under 26 just get started volunteering and then if you think archiving sounds fun volunteer for that there's a nonprofit or there's a artisan tradesman or there's a, you know, window restorer or a even city entity that needs interns and needs help. So start there. You'll find a job in preservation or you'll need to go back to school for a even an even better job in preservation. Yeah. <laughs> and so at least you sound like you know what you're talking about on that end. <laughs> That's nice. But um I mean, I really just can't recommend do everything you see. Be a yes person when it comes to preservation Mm -hmm. and positions. Mm -hmm. So find out what you like. Great. All right. Well, I think that's all for today. Thank you very much for being a guest on our show. Thanks for having me, Taylor. This is so so much for fun. (laughs) So much fun. Thank you for serving scotch. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm trying to see. Just a quick note about this episode. Leah and I were discussing the Crosstown Concourse in Memphis, Tennessee, and she asked me about the persons uh, working on that project when it was developed, and I told her that I thought it was all private individuals, but it actually is a 501c3 nonprofit called Crosstown Arts uh, that was formed to facilitate the redevelopment of the building using arts and culture as a catalyst for change. Additionally, the square footage of the building is actually 1.5 million square feet. I think I was a little bit under my estimate of 150,000 square feet. Uh, so it's, it's significantly larger than I could remember, but it's definitely a really nice space. And also this year, the Crosstown Concourse was awarded a Richard H. Dryhouse Foundation National Preservation Award, which is something that is awarded by the National Trust for historic preservation. And I will put links to all of this information in the show notes on the website www.preservationdestination.com if you want to learn more about Crosstown Concourse and the specifics about the rehabilitation project because it is a great project. And I will also include information about the Main Street America program that we were discussing as well. We were talking about that and um, we were talking about the voting which is actually finished. So I will link to the winner of that voting process for the Main Street America for this year. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guests' information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. 
If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.